Well, good morning, Real Life family. It is good to be together this morning. I hope all of you moms out there have some awesome kids, young or grown up, that have been creative at helping you celebrate Mother's Day today. I know this is kind of a, a unusual Mother's Day with the COVID restrictions going on, and so probably many of you who would normally have been doing a big family gathering, maybe you can't today. Maybe some of the moms are a little bit older and uh, you're just uh, being cautious and being careful, and so you're kind of foregoing the traditional Mother's Day stuff today. I just want to say, uh, moms, uh, whatever age you are and wherever you're watching from, we love you. And uh, literally, we wouldn't be here without you, right? Like that's the best compliment you could ever get. Um, if you're a mom, why don't you go ahead and drop it in the comments and let us know that you're a mom watching and tell us how old your kids are. So uh, you don't have to tell us their names or anything, but just uh, how old your kids are, and uh, if you're a mom, our team uh, would love to just uh, give you some kudos and celebrate this day with you. So thanks for that. Hey, we are going to dive back into the book of Acts. We've been studying through the book of Acts. And last week we took a look at Paul and Silas in a town called Philippi. And there they faced some pretty stiff persecution. Um, not only did they see some amazing things happen, but they were also uh, beaten and jailed and in spite of that, some awesome stuff happened. They saw even whole families come to know the Lord and be baptized. And so it's pretty amazing stuff. If you missed last week, you can jump on our website and catch the video of the sermon there. We're going to pick up this week with Paul and Silas and his uh, their companions as they leave Philippi. And they're actually going to travel south to a place called Thessalonica. And this little journey that they go on is not really that little of a journey. It's a hundred mile uh, march uh, by foot from uh, Philippi all the way down to Thessalonica. And so they get down to Thessalonica and as they get into Thessalonica, this is a whole different kind of city. This is something altogether different that they're coming into here. Unlike Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony and there were some unique things about Philippi because it was, it was built by Caesar to house uh, retired military officials from Rome. Uh, Thessalonica was a whole different city. They didn't have the colony status, but they were actually um, dedicated as a free city. And, and there's a lot that goes into that. But one of the things that it meant was that they were allowed to kind of self-govern in a large part. And so here we've got this free city that can self-govern. It's a much bigger city than Philippi. A lot of uh, reports uh, say that at certain times it was upwards of 200,000 people in the city of Thessalonica. And so this is a big place. In fact, by ancient standards, Thessalonica was 10 times the size of the average uh, city in the ancient world. So this was a little bit like uh, most of us across rural America going to a New York or an LA. Like this was a big, big deal walking into a town like this. And so uh, with the free city issue and uh, being allowed to sort of self-govern came some issues too. It didn't really work out as dreamy as you might think. As you can imagine, you put a couple hundred thousand people together in a city and give them a lot of authority to sort of make up their own decisions uh, and make their own rules and guidelines. and. And so there was uh, sort of a mob rule uh, mentality to some degree. And we're going to see that come up in the story that we get into this morning. 
Another thing we need to know about Thessalonica and some of the background of something that was relevant there before we jump into the text is this issue about the decrees of Caesar. We're going to hear those come up in the passage today. And the, the decrees of Caesar were uh, these things that the Caesars would do. They would make these edicts or decrees, these laws, uh, stating crazy things. Like, uh, for example, one of the Caesars had said that it was illegal to uh, talk about any opposition to Rome or to predict somehow Rome would be overthrown or there would be any new authority coming into Rome. If you even talked about that, that was breaking a law. And then Caesar Augustus made uh, an edict that said it's illegal for anyone to use astrology to predict the day of his death or anyone's death. And so for people that practiced astrology, you weren't allowed to predict the date of a death, for example. And so these edicts or decrees were a little bit like our modern day world where a president will make uh, an executive order and it kind of supersedes everything. It's like, you have to follow this, okay? And so here you've got the Caesars that uh, at different times, and so this time with Caesar Augustus, they send out these decrees, he makes these rules or edicts, and, and as a result, these different cities would respond to these rules by actually making pledges or oaths. And so like a whole city or like a city council, if you will, would gather together and they would make up their oath or uh, oath of loyalty or promise to Rome that was sort of like, on behalf of our city, here's what we promise, right? And they were different a little bit in different cities, but they generally seems like followed the same types of language and principles. And we actually have one from uh, ancient antiquity that was uh, excavated in archaeology in a place uh, called, I got to look at my notes to make sure I say it the right way, uh, Paphylagonia, which is a city in uh, northern Asia Minor. And in that area, about 3 BC is when this script or text was dated to. And it's an example of an oath of loyalty that a city uh, would have made to Caesar. And so I'll, I want us to look at it together because I want you to get a frame of reference for what it would have been like, what you would have been required to pledge as maybe the average person coming into Thessalonica. So it goes like this. He says, um, as an oath, you would have to swear this. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul nor life or children. That, what, uh, that whenever I hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. And so you sort of get this idea. You're starting to get a picture of um, this was a big deal to make a pledge like that, right? Like you're, you're, they're being asked to essentially say, I'll pledge everything uh, to support Caesar and his descendants uh, by every means necessary is really what you're asking to be pledged. And, and these pledges or oaths would have been required to do business in the Agora, in the city. And so in order to rent a booth, you would have had to have been able to pledge this oath to Caesar. In order to worship at different temples, you would have had to have been uh, required to pledge this oath. And so it puts Christians 
in a really tough predicament. And so that's kind of a, a side note of something to chew on as we're learning about uh, some of the context of this text itself. And so it also helps us understand how easy it would have been in a place like Thessalonica for violence to be stirred up against a guy like Paul, who comes in preaching a message about a Messiah and a King of Kings and a Lord of Lords. And so we're going to see some of those details come up in the text that we get into today in Acts 17. So Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 2. Uh, if you grab your Bibles, we're going to go 2 through 9, or you can just follow along on screen. Uh, verse 2 starts like this. As was his custom, uh, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them to the crowd. Uh, but when they didn't find them there, they dragged Jason and the other believers before the city officials and they were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason welcomed them into his house. Listen, they're all defying Caesar's decrees. They're saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then they made Jason and the others post bond to let him go. You see, but there was these other Jews, and these other Jews were jealous, and, and when we start to see this idea of that they were jealous, makes me wonder, like, jealous of what, right? Like, here comes Paul and Silas, these new guys, these traveling rabbis and they're teaching and they come and they teach in the synagogue for for three sabbaths so for three weeks straight they teach and they reason and they they dialogue with jews and god-fearing greeks and and prominent women and what happens is uh, some of the jews are actually persuaded and they believe uh, the testimony of Paul that, that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised. They believe what he teaches from the scripture that Jesus of Nazareth did fulfill the prophecies that he taught and spoke about. And so there's some Jews that are persuaded. And then in addition to the Jews, it says that there's a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And so what we've got to understand there is here, these are Greek men who have converted to Judaism and are, are worshiping at the synagogue with the Jews. And so You've got this large number of them that have been persuaded to believe what Paul and Silas are teaching. And then you also have, it says, and it says like something like not a few prominent women. And, and there's something significant about that because there are some important women. And it was uh, common in the Mediterranean culture that some of the women became very wealthy. It was still far less than the number of men who became wealthy, but some of the women became very wealthy and they would sponsor or invest in local teachers and philosophers and kind of support them. And so they, they got their support. And so these uh, prominent women came on board. And, and along with prominent or important women, also oftentimes would come the ear of a, an important man or an important leader that maybe they were married to. And so there are all these things going on that would have maybe given these other Jews these reasons to be jealous, right? It, it, it became more about the fact that um, 
that that these guys were taking away their followers. Their, you know, maybe they were worried that their support was at risk or that their influence was at risk. But uh, all we really need to know is that somewhere along the way, these jealous Jews, they, they lost the plot. And rather than hearing the message that Paul and Silas brought and, and receiving it with joy, they actually reacted with jealousy. And, and that jealousy gave birth to evil intentions and the, the kind of intentions that would lead a person to go and stir up a mob falsely accusing the people uh, about things that they didn't even actually do, right? Like this is where that jealousy led. And so the, the interesting thing is here we also have this guy Jason mentioned and poor Jason, all he did was just graciously host Paul and Silas and the, and the others. And he gets drug into this whole thing simply by being a host. And so they, the mob goes to Jason's house. They look for him. They're looking for Paul and Silas. They can't find him. And so they drag him out. And it says that they actually had to post bond to uh, get let free. And so it cost them money. It cost them humiliation. It cost them fear and anxiety. And you can bet when it was all said and done, it wasn't like they just went home and everything was great. You can bet that they were still facing continued persecution after this, with people wondering, uh, was he loyal to Rome? Was Jason, was the, were these other believers, uh, you know, rabble-rousers, trouble-causers? What were they up to, right? And so, at this point, the, the brothers there, the believers, realize it's not safe for Paul and Silas to stay in Thessalonica anymore. And so at night, they send them south to a place called Berea. And it, it's important for us to take note and get in our mind a, 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 a map or a picture of the distance that they're traveling because it's no small walk. It's no short walk to Berea. It's like 50 miles. And so it's a pretty significant walk to get down to Berea. And and what does Paul do when he gets there? When he and Silas get there, what does he do? Surely, surely Paul doesn't go right to the synagogue. And surely he doesn't start just teaching again, right? Like at some point you would think, is Paul going to learn his lesson? Is he ever going to maybe take a different approach? And so I want to pick up the rest of the story with you in verse 10. It goes like this. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, and uh, also uh, a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and, and stirring them up. Now, if, if we can't take away from this that Paul was a man on a mission, then I don't know who was. Like, he was so devoted. He was, he was stubborn to share the gospel. Paul was on such a mission. And, and thankfully, as he gets to Berea, he's actually met here with a much more positive reception than he was in Thessalonica. And so there was a, a much better start, but, but guess what happens? 
here comes the naysayers, right? When the, the jealous Jews from Thessalonica found out that he was down in Berea, they went there. Now, you've got to keep something in mind here. This is important that we don't lose this little nugget, this little detail. When is the last time you hiked 50 miles for anything? These guys were so out to get Paul and Silas and to come up against them and oppose them that they actually walked 50 miles just to go and stir up the crowd and to agitate them. And so that's that's this jealousy that has now grown beyond jealousy into something greater. This, this spite, this bitterness that drove them to hike all the way down to Berea and stir the crowd up against them and make all these false claims and false accusations there. And you got to remember too, they weren't going down there because they were concerned or worried about Paul's doctrine. They weren't going because they were afraid or uh, wanted to protect the purity of the scriptures or the text. They were going there because they were jealous of Paul and Silas's influence. They were jealous that people had chosen to follow them, right? They were worried about their finances, about their influence. In fact, when they were in Thessalonica, you got to remember the claim they made about them there was that they were... Um, not lining up with the oath to support Caesar. They were saying they're promoting another king, which is really kind of an ironic claim for a Jew because the Jews uh, hated, strongly disliked the Romans, to say the least. And so for these Jews to even make the, the to swear the oath of loyalty that might have been required in a place like Thessalonica would have been would have caused them to break their own law that there is no other gods before the one true God. And then they went on to break another one of their laws when they it says that they're not allowed to make a false testimony or swear a, a false statement about somebody else. And yet that's exactly what they did about Paul and Silas. And so we can see by these things, it reveals their motives, that their motives weren't about protecting doctrine. Their motives were about protecting their reputation, about protecting their budget. And so here they come, 50 miles south, causing problems, stirring up the mob again. And it wasn't about righteousness, it was about this jealousy and spite that was driving them, right? And so this morning, I think there's a couple of lessons that we can take away from this passage from these stories from this text this morning and and I think there's probably many lessons we could take away from it there's a couple I want to camp out on as we're um, kind of winding down with this message this morning one of the things is it's important that we remember and we recognize that the truth is when we sell out to follow Jesus when sharing our faith becomes a, a priority in our lives. The truth is we're going to face opposition. We're going to have detractors. We're going to have people that stab us in the back, that gossip about us, that, that say hard things even to our face, that, that argue against what we believe in um, just because they just can't stand the idea of, of people in our same friend group maybe or your same friend group going to your side, so to speak. And so the, the, one of the things that's important to, is not to look forward to having people that oppose you, not to, I'm not saying it so that we could think about like, I, I should have enemies, I want enemies because that's evidence that I'm on track. I'm not saying it in that way at all. 
What I am saying is, don't be caught off guard when following Christ becomes of the utmost importance to you and you find you have opposition. Instead, be ready for it. And it kind of ties into the next thing that I want to talk about as a, as a takeaway for us this morning is the next thing I think is important for us to learn from this lesson is um, how Paul handled distractions. And I think this is a lesson that we could chew on for a minute. It's so important. I think it's really relevant to the world that we're living in right now because right now, more than maybe ever or more than a normal time, because of all the things going on with the COVID stuff, there is so many messages coming at us. There are so many news reports. There are so many experts. There are so many things telling us that this is what's going to happen or that's what's going to happen or whether it's this governor of this state or this governor of that state or this president or these rules or this phase or these guidelines. And we're so glued to the news and social media because we're concerned about when can people go back to work? When can businesses open? Uh, when can we start getting back to life? When is it safe? When is it not safe? What's true? What's not true? Right? We're, we're so enveloped in all of this stuff on top of all of the normal things that are vying for our attention, that, that the things that are of the utmost important to us, the things that are the, the main things that we're devoted to and we should care about most can easily get shifted to the back of the train. And things that are not that important can take precedence. And I think it's important for us to learn from a guy like Paul, a guy like Paul who was so committed to keeping the main things, the main things. Everywhere he went, he faced all sorts of opposition, all sorts of persecution, all sorts of false accusations about him, uh, people making claims against him, arguing against him. There's all these things that happened. Uh, Iconium, he, he went and they, there was arguments for days and he could have got wrapped up in those. Lystra, that first they goes in and, and they think he's a Greek god, the messenger god Hermes, and, and he doesn't get distracted by that. He realigns everybody. He gets them focused on what his main priorities are. What does he want to communicate? Who is he? What is he all about? And he no sooner gets that done does he get stoned and nearly killed, and he still doesn't throw in the towel. He gets back up and he goes right back in to say the same thing to the same people. And on and on and on and on. Everywhere Paul goes, he's got this tenacity and this grit to stay the course and to keep the main things, the main things. So for Paul, what were the main things? For Paul, I think if we had asked him what they were, he would have a long list, but I think for sure at the top of his list would have been two things. First off and foremost, and always at the top of Paul's list would have been that his heart's desire was to share with his fellow Jews, his brothers, that, that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. He was the one that the scriptures taught about, prophesied about, said was to come, that he indeed was the Messiah. That was, his, that was his number one priority. And the second one was just like it. It was right up there with it because it was, it was also at the top of his mind everywhere he went. It, it dictated what he did. The second one was this, everybody outside of the Jewish family, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that all of them would know that in Christ there is freedom. There is freedom from sin that as they put their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior, that they could be forgiven, that they could uh, be baptized and receive the same Spirit of God that the Jews received. 
that they could have a right relationship with God, be citizens in God's kingdom. Like those are the things that, that were the main things for Paul. In fact, those two things were so important to him that they permeated the way he thought. They, they, they shaped what he taught about. They, they shaped the words he used, the letters he wrote, the places that he went, the people that he hung out with, the work that he did or didn't do, the, 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 just everything about his life was built around accomplishing those things that he was so devoted to. So again, I ask us, I ask you watching, if somebody asked you, what are you living your life for? What are the main things? Could you sit down right now with a pen and paper and could you write out a paragraph that, that clearly says, what your life is devoted to. I know probably a lot of you have heard this analogy before and I've heard it many times myself. It's this idea that if people were able to look into our bank account and look at our schedule, they could learn a whole bunch about us, right? So if they looked at, if you were to let someone have access and see every single thing you spend money on and see everything that you spend your time on and how much of each you spend on everything, a person, whether they knew you or not, could probably come to some pretty good conclusions about what is the most important stuff to you based on how you spend your time and how you spend your money. So my question is, let's say that happens. Let's say somebody looks into your budget, into your bank account, they, they tracked your time. What would someone come up with? Even if they didn't know you, what would they say your life is about? What are you devoted to? What's driving you? What's dictating what you do and where you go and who you spend time with and what you care about? What is that? And does it line up with a life that Jesus calls us to? Now here's the challenge. Some of you may not even know, really. Maybe, you know, as you're thinking about this, you're like, I don't know that I could sit down and write a paragraph right now and map out what my life is is devoted to or what I want my life to be about. And if you can't, newsflash, that's a little bit of a problem. Like, honestly, if, if you don't know, then what are you living for? What do you get out of bed for every day? What do you go to work for every day? Like, what are you passionately pouring yourself into and why? And if you can't answer those questions, Man, I would encourage you to dig in and, and spend some time with Jesus and, and spend some time with some friends that you trust asking for help, digging that out. Here's the other challenge, though, is some of you really do know what you want to be known for, what you want to live for, what do you want to be devoted to. Like Paul, you, you've got a clear picture. But what if, what if the things that people see in you don't line up? What if it doesn't line up with who you say you want to be and what you say you want to be about? Then what do you do? Well, friends, I got to tell you, that's why it is so important when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus and growing to be more like Christ, that you're in relationship with other people that you trust. Because it's going to be those people that you trust who are walking with you to learn how to follow Jesus and to learn how to live out and be committed to the things that you want to commit your life to. It's going to be those people that are going to be willing to say hard things to you, point out blind spots maybe that you have, talk through things with you, affirm when you're on track, right? Paul never did this alone. 
He didn't travel alone. He didn't do his life alone. He had amazing people around him. And you look at the people around Paul, and it says a lot about the kind of person Paul was. You look at his crew. Here he spent years and years with a dear friend named Barnabas, whose reputation preceded him as a man of great encouragement. How awesome would it be to have one of your best friends and companions in life be known far and wide as an awesome encourager? Sounds like a really cool friend, right? Alongside Barnabas, he had guys like uh, Luke, who was a trained physician who had adjusted his life and commitment and rearranged his life to be a part of the mission of Christ and travel and record these different things that would happen with Paul along the way. And then you have guys like Silas, who is a devout Jew, who is willing to stick his neck out there and risk it and go with a guy like Paul to bring the gospel and the good news to the Gentiles and face all this opposition and jail and everything. Like he was a guy that was all in as a right-hand man. Sounds like a pretty awesome friend. And then he had a young man like Timothy that he kind of took under his wing and carried along with him. And a guy like Timothy that knew what it was like to not belong and not fit in. And think of what he brought to the table. And so you've got this great crew that, that Paul travels with. And I got to tell you, these are the guys for sure that when Paul got discouraged and got tired and, and, and was losing his way, these are the guys that lifted him up. These are the guys that encouraged him, that they gave him a kick in the butt when he needed it, when he was being a butt, when he was being a brat, when he was being annoying, right? Like he's human, like all of us. And he needed men like these around him to be there and help him stay the course and to help him keep the main things the main things. These are the same guys that would have helped him back away when he wanted to fight the wrong fights, that would have got him involved in things that weren't the main things for him. And thank God for friends like that. And so for those of you watching this morning, I just, I just want us to say, like we, we read these stories about Paul and Silas going to Philippi and, st and staying the course and having this amazing uh, ministry that they're doing. And, 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 and yet there's all this persecution and they're facing these troubles and people are opposing them and against them. And yet they've got this grit and tenacity to keep presenting the gospel and they don't get swayed, right? Like, like, that didn't happen on accident. They know what they want to live for, what they want to commit their life for and to, and, and what they want to be known for. And I would challenge us this morning to dig in and really write that out. What do you want to be known for? What do you want to live for? What are your main things? And here's the thing, you, you can't do it alone. You need to be a part of relationship when you grow as a disciple. And so at the, here in uh, just a minute, we're going to be switching and, and taking some communion together. But before we do that, I'm going to have us uh, put Adam McKeldry's info up on screen. And Adam is our home groups pastor. And here at our church, he is the guy that is going to help you find your crew. He's the guy that's going to help you find the guys or the gals that will dig in and walk through this with you. For some of you, maybe it'll be him. For a season. For some of you, he'll get to know you a little bit and he'll learn about what kind of a person you are and what are your background and, and he'll it'll help him figure out who might be the right Barnabas for you or the right Timothy for you to take under your wing, right? Like let Adam 
help you. If you're like, I've been a part of a home group before and I, I don't know, it wasn't the right fit, give him a call. Let him help you find the right group and help you find people that can walk with you and help encourage you and help you stay the course to keep the right things the right things in your life. So right now we're going to switch and we're going to finish up with communion like we do every week. So if you have not got your elements for communion, now is a great time to grab those and then I'm going to do the same and we will take communion together as a family in a minute. Well, this morning we're going to finish with communion like we do every week at Real Life. And it's important to remind everyone that you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion with us. Anybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is welcome to have communion with us. In fact, I love the fact that there are so many people from so many different places right now uh, and all of us are about to take communion together. And it's a, it's a great thing that syncs us up together as a family even though we're far apart. And so communion for us is a memorial and it's a, a time where we, we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. We remember what was accomplished as he conquered death. Um, for me this morning, reflecting on the message, I think something that's important to remember is the, the tenacity and grit and follow through that Jesus had. To, to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Like how easily could he have been pulled astray and, and how easily could he have been distracted and clearly the devil threw everything he had at him to tempt him to, to make something else more important than what God had set him out to do. But I'm so grateful that Jesus followed through and he stayed devoted to the most important thing and that was what was accomplished on the cross and because of that we can have forgiveness for our sins and a right relationship with God and so this morning we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it and he said as often as you get together let's eat this in remembrance of him <clears throat> in the same way after supper he took the cup and he told him that this cup represented a new covenant, uh, like a new agreement, a new contract, and it was sealed with the shedding of his blood. And so we are in a, a new contract with God because of the shed blood of Jesus. And so as we drink this, let's remember that. Well, pray with me as we get ready to finish this morning, would you? Father God, we love you, and we are so grateful that you're our God. We're so grateful that you um, gave guys like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and so many others this, this spirit of tenacity and um, follow-through and just this eagerness to stay the course, helping people know about your son. Thanks for the example they set. And I pray that uh, many of us in our church are leaving behind a legacy that people could look to like theirs. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, church, 
I hope you have a fabulous rest of your Sunday. Uh, I am going to be live for Jesus Time Monday through Friday this week. Uh, sometimes we may be out on location. So if you get a chance to tune in for those, they're uh, Monday through Friday live at 8. And if you don't catch it live, you can always go on our YouTube or on our Facebook channel and just watch them later in the day when you get time to get around to it. So those are a great way to just get a little nugget, 10 minutes or less to get your uh, day off and running with some Jesus time and something to think about for the day. So hope you guys have an awesome afternoon and we will see you soon.